This is Anne Fremantle introducing another of WNYC's PEN, P-E-N, portraits. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent world association of writers. The initials, PEN, P-E-N, stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922, with Booth Tarkington as its first president. The present president of International Pen is the old novelist V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American Pen is the young novelist Jerzy Kosinski. Pen has over 80 centers in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia, and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American Pen, which has its headquarters in New York but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the membership committee extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for? What does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association, working in a practical way on all matters of concern to writers generally. Better protection of literary copyrights, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. Jerzy Kosinski has just announced that the Centre will present annually the Ernest Hemingway Foundation Award of $3,000 for the best first novel by an American published during the pre previous year. The new award is donated by the M Ernest Hemingway Foundation, established by Penn member Mary Hemingway in memory of her husband. This award is the latest expression of Penn's concern for the plight of the beginning writer, who has increasing difficulty finding a publisher and readers. Penn has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and Penn members in the Penn Charter pledge themselves, quote, to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong. Penn is, therefore, against all censorship of the written word. Talking today over WNYC radio under the auspices of Penn are Emily Hahn, biographer, novelist, geologist, and Norman Cousins, editor, biographer, professor, and essayist. They are going to address themselves to the question, do men and women approach ultimate reality differently? Emily Hahn was born in St. Louis, a member of a large family of readers. She declared she would never become a writer, and already in high school had a passion for geology. She took her degree in geology at the University of Wisconsin and taught geology at Hunter College. In 1930, she went to England, then to the Belgian Congo, then via England to China, where she remained until she was repatriated to the US from Hong Kong in 1943. At the end of the war, she married an Englishman and returned to England. Now she's back here. She has written over 20 books, among them biographies of the Sung sisters, of Raffles, who founded Singapore, and of Leonardo da Vinci. She has a felicitous choice of titles, Love Conquers Nothing, A Glandular History of Civilization, On the Side of the Apes, An Account of the Experiments in Teaching Apes to Talk. Her latest book is Once Upon a Pedestal, in 1974. Norman Cousins, editor of Saturday Review World, is also author of a dozen or so books, including Dr. Schweitzer of Lambarini and The Improbable Triumvirate. His latest book, in Celebration of Life is a Socratic dialogue on immortality and infinity published by Harpoon Row. Mr. Cousins has received the personal medallion of Pope John XXIII, the Peace Medal of the United Nations, and the Family of Man Award. 
Mr. Cousins is also Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Emily Hahn, biographer, essayist and geologist, and Norman Cousins, editor, biographer and essayist, are going to discuss over at WNYC under the auspices of Penn, do men and women approach ultimate reality differently? Norman, in your latest book, you tell us that infinity is, quote, what the universe is not. It is a field for the relativistic unit that comprises the universal essence. That essence being the interaction and interchangeability of space, time, energy, and matter. Emily, do you think women approach such a question, this universal essence, for instance, do they approach it differently from men? Does your approach to it dif differ from that of Norman Cousins, for example? Uh, I've never thought that one's approach to uh, infinity would, is a secondary sexual characteristic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an individual matter. I think probably I would agree with Norman about infinity, although I was always satisfied with the, well, not satisfied. The idea of infinity does not satisfy me. It bothers me all the time. I remember when I was a child. Do you, Norman, do you remember the old uh, cornflake box? Uh, there was a child sitting on that box, holding on her lap a cornflake box, on which was a picture of a child holding on her lap a cornflake box. And uh, it got too small for you to see, but that, to me, was infinity. And uh, in a way, I suppose it still is. Well, the universe is not there. You said it for both of us, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> but you made quite a, uh, quite a point in your book about the fact that if one became infinitely small, it wouldn't alter anything with, uh, to do with the structure of ourselves or infinity. Well, that was a hypothetical exercise designed to emancipate us from considerations of space, size, and time, which unfortunately interferes with philosophical conceptions. We tend to be uh, space-minded, size-minded, uh, and it's quite possible that the contemplation, the true contemplation philosophically of infinity, requires that we, we liberate ourselves from, from uh, notions that tend to cramp us, and what I what I did was to pose the question, can you imagine that this world and everything in it is half the size? Would you know the difference? And the answer is, of course, relatively, we wouldn't know the difference. We wouldn't if we're the same size. That's right. Now, let me ask you, uh, Emily, uh, take the next step. Can you imagine that having reduced ourselves by half, that we will reduce ourselves by half again? Would you know the difference? I don't think we'd ever know the difference. We would never, and we could keep no. this on almost indefinitely under, yes. until everything, uh, you uh, and Anne and I, uh, the studio, uh, the world, are contained in what we now regard as something that is uh, sub-molecular, uh, yes. let's say a meson, mm -hmm. the smallest measurable part of matter. But since everything retains its relationship with respect yes. to everything else, we couldn't tell the difference. Therefore, the important thing is function and essence yes. rather than absolute size. So the, the reason for that is that I, I tried to say that let's contemplate infinity philosophically without, without being overawed by size. Generally, we tend to look out uh, at the stars and the sky and we see this, this grandness and this, uh, this grandeur and this vastness and uh, suddenly we we have a spiritual experience which is natural, but that, in order to be philosophical it seems to me, we have to go to the other end 
and say that everything would be just as great as it is and just as awesome even if we didn't have to look for proof of, let's say, the deity to grandeur. The true contemplation, it seems to me, of the deity should proceed not out of, of cosmic spectacles, but perhaps out of a void. In this sense, of course, we, we uh, tend to move towards Eastern philosophy. Yes, I think that my moment of awakening probably was uh, in science, mm -hmm. the study of uh, molecules, atoms, um, and that relationship. I suddenly thought, I'm not so sure now, but I thought then that, uh, that was, there was a pattern that should satisfy everybody. Why all these religious arguments, I thought. There it is. Yes. There is the pattern. And also the pattern keeps repeating itself, whether you go down the scale of, uh, of size or whether you go up the scale yes. in size. Yes. Uh, it's quite possible that the entire universe uh, bears somewhat the same relationship to that which lies outside it as the... Uh, as, as the, the molecule yes. is in your own body. Yes, or as the atom in yes. respect to the molecule. Yes. These relationships keep on repeating themselves. Yes. Incidentally, the, uh, the uh, relative uh, proportion of space in the universe, despite the fact we look out and we see what we think is a great nothingness, but that the relative proportions of space to matter or matter to space in the universe are about the same as they are in the atom. You have these grand, these, these grand stretches of space inside the atom, yes. but we're apt to think of it yes. in terms of solid yes. matter, which of course it is not. Yes. But what I was rather interested in, um, uh, both of you agreeing so much on this, um, it seems to me that it might be that in a relationship not to infinity but to immortality, men and women might have different viewpoints. Now that's... Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, Norman, your book is about immortality as well as infinity. I and think that Anne, uh, I think, uh, said it for both of us when she said that she didn't think that this was a secondary sexual characteristic. I, I, I would uh, add only to that that I don't think it's a primary sexual characteristic either. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> no, and of course, some of the greatest mystics uh, have been women. I mean, um, yeah. Juliana of Norwich, yes. and Teresa, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's no question about that, I think. But uh, I don't think they might be different. Immortality versus infinity. What have you to say about that, Norm? The one, of course, has to begin with some definitions. Uh, one definition of infinity, of course, is that uh, it is larger than the largest thing you can think of, just mm. just as a start. But then you have to make a distinction between infinity and uh, the universe. Uh, the universe uh, uh, lies inside infinity, which is oh say, yes, of course, and uh, therefore infinity has to be larger than anything mm -hmm. inside it. Uh, now the next question, of course, is um, immortality. One's uh, approach to both, it seems to me, has to be free of any sense of dimension. And one of the problems, of course, in the contemplation of infinity, perhaps, is that we have tended to circumscribe it and tended to limit the consideration of, of immortality to the self, whereas uh, there may be a much larger infinity, a uh, much larger immortality, immortality. yes, much larger immortality, in which we renew ourselves, uh, and even though we may be deprived of personal memory 
inside that immortality so that we can we won't know who we later whom we are now yeah. that is not what is important the important thing is an ego free immortality one one in which the values of life can expand and endure uh, and in which the uh, the fundamental decency as i conceive it to be of the human species and the potentiality of the human species can can continue uh, life is the ultimate prize. It's a prize uh, to be cherished, and perhaps it's only when we we see ourselves as part of a, a larger immortal body that we uh, place the value of of immortality where it ought to be. But then we've lost. I've said, I've said things that will take me ten years to understand. Yes. <laughs> uh, you don't agree then with the Noel Coward character who said a sort of dingy merging into everything. <laughs> well, it's. There's nothing especially hypnotic or attractive to me in the notion of dinginess uh, when applied to um, nirvana. The, yeah, that's right, or the possibilities of life. Don't you think, though, that it's possible that any idea of personal immortality contradicts infinity? It seems to me that no extension in time can have any relation to to infinity. That any, that whether it's personal or, or for the species, because it's related to time, it can have no relation to infinity. What do you think, Emily? I think you're right. But uh, I was thinking that uh, the reason I want immortality is not, uh, and we all do, I think. I don't. Never did. No? Mm -mm. Well, I always have, except <laughs> when I'm not feeling well. <laughs> but uh, it's a great curiosity I have. And if my curiosity is gone, when I've merged into everything, uh, well, I don't want it. But if I, if it's given to me, <laughs> there it is. But don't you think is this point about eternity being, but beyond time? I mean, if if it's this business about the only now, if it if if there is infinity, it's now, and it's not anything to do with time. Yes, I suppose that which yes. is most satisfying of about philosophy is the pursuit of questions. The only time philosophy ceases to be philosophy is when you find the answers, then it becomes yes, something else. Yes. So uh, I think that um, it's satisfying and stimulating to think about immortality, but I suppose once we decide... When, when we say, when we say we yes. go on, what we? Well, when we say we know what it is, absolutely. Yes. Then perhaps the, the fun goes out of the question. Yes, well, I don't think we ever will. <laughs> Not in this life. Like that nice joke that you see in shops, uh, you'll never get out of this world alive, which I was think is one of the better <laughs> Yes, remarks. I like that. I yeah. like that very much. But um, this immortality bit, is, <laughs> I believe people say nowadays, um, don't you think women have, uh, I do feel, I'm, I'm not at all a feminist, but I do feel that women have um, a feeling that it doesn't matter so much because of their children, because of children, but men uh, have children. I know they do, but they aren't so so physically concerned with them. I think the, the, the physical relation is. What's that got to do with immortality? That's the one thing that's gone. That's your right there. Yes. Yes. We're free what about do you think? it. Well, or, uh, what I want most to do is to hear what women think about immortality, and uh, not because what they say is different from what men say, but because they have just as much variety in their views, I think, mm -hmm. as, 
as men do. In the book, I uh, try to deal with one aspect of this question, uh, and uh, I try to say that a person may have no jurisdiction over the fact of his existence, but he is not barred from imparting meaning to that existence, and that the tragedy of life is not the fact of death, but in what dies inside a person while that person lives. Uh, no person need fear death. He need fear only that uh, he may die without having known his greatest power, the power of uh, free will to give his or her life to others. And if something comes to life in others because of you, then I think you've made an approach to immortality. And so I think that there's a connection between the search for immortality and the concept of human brotherhood, uh, which is the perhaps the predominating fact of human existence, and that we need not compartmentalize our, our concept of immortality in order to have a, a basis for believing in the complete integration among all the prime elements of a person's life and thought and uh, action and being, which involves uh, spiritual and philosophical beliefs, scientific progress, uh, and ethics. Uh, the, um, then there's, of course, the fact that if your ideas live in others, then you've made a contribution to the immortality of the human spirit. Uh, or if an idea lives in you that was born in others, uh, you are benefiting from a grand continuity of, of the human spirit. Uh, of course, ideas can be good or good as well as bad, or bad as well as good. Is that enough for you, Emily, or do you want more than that? <laughs> well, I was, uh, I'm just throwing in a doubt. If there is a continuity, suppose there's a Holocaust and all our books are burnt. The, so long as the human mind can function, new books will be written. Yes. The, uh, but I hate to think of the others being lost. Yes. You have to start all over again. Yes, and that's why it's important for us to recognize that, that nothing is more essential now than for us to, uh, work to keep this from happening yes because it can happen yes. and it's precisely because we are aware of of that continuity that we have I, I think a very great obligation to maintain it yes yes but do describe what then what you see human progress as a part of immortality yes I I see it I, I conceive of it as an expansive immortality one which is certainly not static and one in which such continuities are what is most valuable in immortality. Yes. What is immortality except the retention of that that which we desire to see retained? Mm. Is that enough? Not for life you? after death. Yes, that's enough. That's for me. enough for you. Yes. That's delightful. <laughs> because so um, not it's personal it. life after death. Then no. I'll accept it. Yes. No, I think that personal mm -hmm. life after death is something um, one can outgrow. Yes. yes, possibly. One's got to. One's got to. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Do you think that most men and women do arrive at that point at some time in their lives? If they live long enough, I think we grow wiser and uh, more reconciled. And perhaps we even forget to want so much to live after death as we get older. That's the Jungian view, isn't it? That I don't know. <laughs> I think Jung said, till you are 40, you, you want to live, and then you begin to be reconciled. Oh, well, I you? agree. I th isn't, isn't that... Um, I think that's the Jungian view. That's People right. But, but, but again, we have to caution ourselves about the need to avoid being stuck with answers and to maintain the quest. 
Yes, we yeah. never want answers, really. You remember T.S. Eliot? to be stuck with them, yes. You remember that wonderful remark of T.S. Eliot? Um, we know all the answers. Uh, we do not want the answers. It is the questions that we do not know. Yes. Yeah. That's good. He was a wise man, I think. But do you think infinity is, is constantly stretching? It seems to me that all these uh, ideas about uh, enzymes and mi micro, what are those things called, you know? I don't know. <laughs> yes, inside of us, that are whole families and things. Yes, well, of course, the thing that I micro. think that, that uh, is most fascinating about infinity is that any true contemplation of infinity must lead to the conclusion that life exists elsewhere in the universe because infinity is that which lies beyond time and space. Therefore, you have only to stretch or enlarge your concept of infinity to reach the point where you can conceive of life existing elsewhere. Uh, and nature shuns one of a kind as much of it as it abhors a, a, a vacuum. Therefore, uh, infinity converts that which is possible into the inevitable, which means that, of course, life abounds in the universe. Uh, and there are billions, literally billions, an infinite number of uh, planets throughout the universe in which life exists in sentient form. And if we don't believe that that is possible, all we have to do is to enlarge our universe to whatever extent is necessary to encompass it. Uh, so that infinity bring, brings us, it seems to me, to where we are today. Uh, we have to enlarge our philosophy. We live at a time when we are making we're having a direct experience with the universe. It is no longer theoretical. And it seems to me that the effect on our philosophy is going to be every bit as profound as it was uh, at the time of the Copernican Revolution. Uh, we now have, as I, I, as I say, the, the specific fact of, of uh, men and women existing in direct contact with the universe. And this uh, cannot be viewed in narrow terms. It has to be viewed in terms of, of all the old philosophical and spiritual questions, including immortality. Uh, much of our thinking, you see, has been tied to the notion of an earthbound creature or an earthbound intelligence. But now suddenly when we, we, we are able to establish a relationship with the universe, we have to be able to encompass the full significance of that in terms of life elsewhere in the universe, as well as what life elsewhere can teach us. That's very interesting. Emily, do you, as a geologist, do you, do you take any notice of Feshner's, uh, Ger that German romantic Feshner, who said that um, all the mountains were still growing and that um, everything, even organic uh, matter had, had life of a sort? I mean, Inorganic in matter? Inorganic matter. Well, that's what the Indians think. Uh, uh, mountains are not necessarily always growing. Depends on what's happening to them at the feet. But uh, but some are. Oh they? yes, some are. Some, uh, yes. The Himalayas. Nothing are ever new stops. Or something. Yes, no. Himalayas. Himalayas are new. Rockies are fairly new. And the, the Welsh yeah. hills are the oldest. The Andes are pretty. Uh, pretty. Yes, the Welsh hills are. Pretty as old. you as you spoke, Anne, I thought back to uh, 1946 and uh, a conversation with. Albert Einstein, when he picked up a stone that was a paperweight on his desk, and uh, he said, as our knowledge grows, we will recognize that life, can, life also exists in this, and he held up the stone. Oh, that's yes, that's good. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Well, of course, there are 
there are atoms, molecules, they're whirling around, you've got life and everything. It's impossible to think of motion without thinking of life. Yes. How can anything move unless there's some life connected with it? Yes. I've never gone in very much for the difference between organic and inorganic on that. No, I imagine yeah. that that's purely a chemistry, yes. a chemistry thing, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, well, there, is, there are progressions, and at, at, at each stage of progression you have to have a name to describe hmm. the stage that you're at. Yeah. And, at, uh, and you, there is a divide at some point between the organic and the inorganic, but the total process that embraces them both is the, is the essential one. Life, and we don't know what it is. <laughs> no, but uh, there's nothing that's more fun than to think about what well, it might I be. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and while we're here, it seems to me one of the most useful things and, and the most nourishing things we can do is to think about it and write about it as... as uh, Norman has done, and as uh, as you have done on on in, in all your various books, I'm very grateful indeed to you, Emily Hahn, and thank you very much, Norman Cousins, for discussing over WNYC Radio under the auspices of Pen P E N. Do men and women approach ultimate reality differently? I think the conclusion is that they approach it just the same. Isn't and it? another conclusion is that I can hardly wait to discuss it with women. <laughs> <laughs>